0: We're doing something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which is the text for today's sermon. So John 1, 1 through 18, says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world." No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: It's just so good. I love that text. Merry Christmas, guys. Uh, Thanks for being here with us. And and to just answer this question from the start, yes, this chair and my shirt were made from the same fabric, right? Like, I kind of want to give the whole message just right here. Can you see me, though? Camouflage? Anyway, I, I seriously thought about it just sitting in that chair, but I'm not going to do it, but I wanted to. Um, thanks for making us a part of your, like, Christmas traditions. Um, we, were, we were talking at, at Connection Group when we had our Christmas party about, like, what everybody's traditions are, and it was kind of crazy because essentially everybody there had this kind of set of traditions that they did every year. Joe and Becky Hill used to create this, like, winter wonderland for their kids. They'd go to their cabin and, like, shovel off the snow from the lake and create, like, an ice skating rink and then, like, a big sledding hill and stuff like that. So what's what's yours? What's your, like, traditions that you're looking forward to? My family was, like, regimented about this stuff. When I think Christmas, when I get like nostalgic about the past that I want back, I think about all of these little details, these little traditions that we would do. So we would do the same thing every year. So Christmas Eve, we'd go to church, we'd come back, we'd have this kind of candlelit dinner, and then we'd watch Miracle on 34th Street, which I've realized since becoming an adult, it's just not that good of a movie. But every year I was like, Santa's real, like believe, it's, it's going to happen, and I'd get fired up for Christmas, and then we'd sit on our couch, and we'd read, like, Bialoski, which was, do you guys know Bialoski? Did anybody else read this? It's about a bear trying to find a Christmas tree, but instead he eats honey. It's just riveting fiction, just just fascinating. We'd read Bialoski in the Polar Express, and then we'd, we'd go to bed and wait for Christmas to be here, right? And, and how our house was set up. Is upstairs was my room and my middle sister's room and my parents' room, and then my oldest sister was was in the basement. and And how we would how it would happen is our big presents would be like laid out in the living room. So the rule was no kids in the living room Christmas morning. But my oldest sister was the one that was most hyped for Christmas, and so she would wake up in the basement at like four in the morning and stand at the bottom of the stairs and scream until she woke us up upstairs. And so she would scream, and then we would all come upstairs, and the rhythm was, the first thing you do is you go in, and you, we would sit on my parents' bed, and we would open our stockings. So you open the stockings, the little gifts, and then the three of us would line up on the stairs, and there was a countdown. Three, two, one, go, mayhem. We're just sprinting down the steps. And it's like, there were a couple of years that one of my sisters ate it on the way down, Like all fair and love and war and Christmas presents, so I just kept going. Like I'm not stopping for anybody. You're shoving along the way, and then you run in, and there are your presents. And we we'd eat the same food, do all the same stuff through the whole day. So some things got interesting as we got a little bit older, where it was no longer like socially acceptable for us to be doing these things. But we just decided, oh, it's just ironic. We're kind of remembering our childhood, so we're going to keep going. And then I got married. And the the first year that Jessmy was there for Christmas, she like woke up and started to to go down the steps right away. And my entire family was like, no, like no kids in the living room. Like we're yelling at her, trying to get her back up. And then my sister gets married to this dude, Nate, who just speaks his mind whenever he feels like it. And so I have this distinct memory, his first Christmas, I'm sitting like inside on my mom's bed, stocking in my lap. And Lindsay is like coaching Nate up about like what's about to happen. And Nate just goes, I'm not doing that. Like, I am not going to go in your mom's room and open a stocking. And I had this moment where I like kind of snapped out of it. I'm like, I'm a full-grown man with a beard, sitting on my mom's bed opening a stocking. Like, what is happening? Like, I really snapped out of it. And 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 like, I I kind of had this introspective moment where I'm like, why do I do this? Like, why do I care about this? And and we all okay. So like, you guys probably aren't that weird. But, but we all have that, right? Like the traditions that we won't let go of. And it, it's like you can't touch that. You can't mess with the Christmas traditions. What are we looking for? We want meaning. Right? Like we, we go through the routines of everyday life and you, just a couple days out of the year, you want to get out of the grind and you want to have something that's significant that means something to you. And so what we do is we take meaningless things and we pretend like they matter. And, and what I want to say this morning is I think we've settled too quickly for meaning. But there's actually real significance. There's real meaning the real story of Christmas, which I know you guys are like, we're at church, we get it, it's about Jesus. Okay, I I know, okay, but I want to have the the Linus moment with Charlie Brown of like, I can tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And I just want to look at it. What's Christmas about and what is it, What does it mean for our lives? And and that's why I wanted to go with John 1 this morning and not Luke uh, where it gives like the the description, the narrative of the Christmas story because what John 1, it's not giving the details of Christmas but it's giving the meaning of Christmas, the weight behind it, the significance. And so I want to look at that. So John starts it like this. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So right off the bat, we see Jesus is given this, this really interesting title, right? The, the Word of God. And, and John's doing something really cool, literally, here, where as the, the Greeks and the Jews are hearing this, they're both thinking of very specific things. And John's like, yep, Jesus is both of those things. So the Jews hear this. That Jesus is the word of God and immediately they're thinking of Genesis. That, that God's word, when he spoke, things just came into being. Jesus is the creative power behind the universe. That's what the Jews are thinking. But The, the Greek audience is hearing this and they're thinking something a little bit different. So this, this Greek word, Logos is, is a, a common idea in Greek thought, and here's what it means. It means the, the reason, the meaning, the rationale behind the universe. They had this idea that there was this kind of distant force that sort of ordered and sustained the universe. And so when they hear John say that Jesus is the word, that's what they're thinking That we're now talking about the logic of the universe. And And the Greeks were obsessed with trying to figure out this idea. What is the logic of the universe? What does this whole thing mean? And so some of the smartest people that have ever walked this planet, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all these guys, they were essentially trying to figure out what does this all mean? And so they were looking at the universe and investigating it and trying to figure it out. So imagine if I gave you a snow shovel but you had never seen snow and you had no concept of snow. What would you do? you pick it up and you'd look at it and you'd investigate it. And, like, what is this thing? Is it a weapon? Try and hit somebody with it? Well, hopefully not. But is this a giant spoon? Is this a catapult? What is this, right? Like you try and figure it out. That's what the Greeks were doing with the universe. And here's the thing is that some of the smartest men in history never figured it out. They essentially gave up. Some of them threw a couple answers out there, but most of them became skeptics where they just questioned everything and said, we can't really figure out meaning. We can't really figure out what this is all for. And against that backdrop, John pens the words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word came and dwelled among us. Jesus is the logic of the universe. Everything that's made was made by him and for him. He infuses it with significance. That's what John is saying about Jesus and about the incarnation. And and the story of Christmas is about that logic, that, that impersonal idea becoming personal, becoming something that we can know, something that we can have relationship with. And when you know him, he infuses your life with meaning. He becomes the meaning of your life. So, so I want to I wanna just look at this incarnation. I wanna I wanna think about it. So so look at like this crazy idea of the incarnation where divinity and humanity intersect. Like like we're familiar with that idea, but it's absolutely insane that God would would put skin on. And and I, I was trying to figure out how to explain this to you. Like it's a pretty intimidating thing to try and talk about the incarnation, like one of the greatest mysteries in the history of the world. <laughs> like, yeah, let's just talk about that and try and figure it out. So I was, I was looking at quotes, and I've, I've shared this before, I'll probably share it again, I love this quote. There's a quote by the theologian Bono about the incarnation. It's not really a theologian, but this is actually incredible. So Bono <laughs> says this, I, I'm quoting Bono. The idea that God if there's a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself as amazing enough, that it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by becoming a child born in straw and poverty. A child. I just thought, wow. The, just the poetry, unknowable love, unknowable power describes itself as the most vulnerable Tears came down my face and I saw the genius of this. Love needs to find form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. So I want to... Center or like kind of organize the rest of this talk around that Bono quote. Let's go. Let's do it. So, specifically, that line unknowable love, unknowable power describes itself as the most vulnerable. So, there's a couple things that I want to just look at and think about with the incarnation. The first is power and weakness, power and weakness. And the second, that the unknowable would become known, that it would become personal that it would become human. So first, power and weakness. Power and weakness. In the beginning was the word. Jesus was in the beginning, like the very beginning of all things, right? So, so before molecules and energy and time itself existed, Jesus was there, and when he decided it was time, he spoke existence into existence, and in this explosion of light and energy and matter, the universe was born because Jesus wanted it to be. Can you imagine that? Like, yeah, I think I'll create the universe today. Boom. Universe. Blows my mind. So I try to figure out how many stars are in the Milky Way. And we don't know. Like, with all of our technology, we can, you know, like, give or take, like, 300 billion stars. Like, so, so on a low end, there's 100 billion stars. There's maybe as many as 400 billion Do you know how many galaxies there are in the universe? Conservative estimate, 100 billion. There are 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars in the universe. Like that number is laughable. Jesus made it. He he holds it like a toy ball in his hand. He could just kind of toss it up and down and catch it if he wanted to, which would be weird for us. Now, if I were to tell you that that God that holds the universe in the palm of his hand was going to have a grand plan to save the world, what would you imagine that plan would be? Lightning bolts, messages in the sky, like, I don't know, like, you're the word of God, speaks something, and then all of a sudden the world's just better. But this is his plan. That God would become a human and, and not even like a full-grown man, a crying baby. That's insane. It's, it's, I, I would, if I didn't know better, I would think God had lost his mind. Like, it's crazy. And, and while, okay, so you know who else Jesus is holding? He's holding his mother, Mary. Like, Jesus held Mary's existence like a ball in his hand, and yet he was born a baby to her. Like while Mary was cradling Jesus in her arms, Jesus was cradling Mary in eternity. Figure that out. That's the insanity of the incarnation. That's the power made weak. So that's that's the power of God. What about, what about the weakness? Well, just think about the Christmas story. Jesus is born in like a nowhere Podoc town. Nobody cared about Bethlehem. Mary was pregnant while she was engaged. If you think there's a little bit of stigma around that, try 2,000 years ago. They were a little bit stuffier about that stuff then, right? And nothing, nothing bad had happened, but people made assumptions, right? Mary and Joseph were probably outcasts in a lot of people's mind. He was born homeless. He was born in a manger. You know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough for animals. Have you ever seen a cow's tongue? It's gross. Cows were licking that manger, and then they put the Son of God in it. The first people to, to hear about this, they weren't kind of the religious elite. They weren't kind of rich rulers. They were shepherds. Those are the people that God goes to tell. And, and maybe the craziest thing about this whole deal is that he became a baby. So as a rule of thumb, I don't hold babies. And it's not because I don't like them. It's because I'm afraid of breaking them. And, and I, I'm hoping that that fear will change. And you parents are like, oh, they're dull, du- durable it's like you don't know how many things I break. We no longer have glasses in our cupboard because I've broken all of them. We have like ball jars because I can't break them. Okay, I don't know where I'm going with this, but but here's the, here's the point. Jesus became breakable. He became a baby. Why? Because that's the God that we needed. Like if He would have come in His power, it would have crushed us. We needed a child. We needed a God that we could see, that we could understand, that we could relate to. And not only that, but we needed a God who could sacrifice for us. We needed an in-kind sacrifice. In order to save humanity, he needed to become a human. He was the baby that was born to die. And he was born to die so that we could become the children of God. The untouchable God became a God familiar with weakness and pain for you, for me, for us. That love defines the meaning of your life. That's what Christmas is about. But I think it's funny how we celebrate that story. Right, so who, who was the first person that thought of a Christmas tree? Maybe some of you know the answer to this, but I sit around, I look at my tree, and I think of this. Somebody just went outside, chopped down a tree, and said, let's put this in our house and hang some glass from it. And that's how we're going to celebrate Christmas. Nativity sets, like we're getting a little bit closer, but it's this little, these little trinkets, these cute little trinkets. That's how we're going to celebrate Christmas. Here, what do we all want on Christmas? We want to be cozy. Right? That's why a lot of college students aren't here, except for you guys, way to be, represent. Um, because they, they wanted to be cozy. They wanted a couch and a fireplace, So, they went to their mom's house and they got a couch and a fireplace. We start putting sweaters on stuff. We put sweaters on mugs. Have you seen those mugs where we put a sweater on it? We put sweaters on candles. We put sweaters on dogs. Because we want to be cozy, we want to be comfortable. But that's not the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is a God leaving the comfort of heaven, He had everything. And he left it to come get you, to come get us. And the way that we find joy is not getting rid of all of our pain, not having comfort and coziness, although that's good stuff. Like, I'm about to go do that after the service. But that's not how we find joy. We find joy by clinging on to that relentless love of a God that would leave heaven to come to earth to come get you. But for a lot of us, Christmas is kind of a hard time to believe the love of, of that God. Right? It's a time with unmet expectations. We get this idea of kind of wonder and twinkling things and whatever. And then it's just like the day comes and it goes. And it's like that was a little anticlimactic. <laughs> I feel a little bit Charlie Brownie at Christmas. Or or even harder stuff, like for some of you, Christmas is you remember people that you've lost. Like there's an empty chair at the dining table. And Christmas kind of becomes that. And it's hard in that moment to believe, to believe the love of God. But here's what you gotta know. If you're hurting, if Christmas isn't this kind of joyful, happy thing for you, if you're weak, you're not alone. Like God embraced hurt. Hurt. He embraced weakness. Why? So that you wouldn't have to walk through it alone. So that you could have him as you walk through that pain, as you walk through that weakness. If you ever doubt for a second that you're loved, look at the incarnation. God experienced everything and more that you could experience. All the pain and all the suffering he willingly took on and he walks in it with you. The promise of Christmas is not that you'll enjoy a painless existence, but that you'll never be alone in the pain. That he'll never leave you or forsake you. You have a God that can relate to you in suffering because he suffered for you. But right right in the middle of that kind of crazy, cosmic description of God's love, there's this little warning that feels like it kind of came out of nowhere. And it's not the happy-go-lucky feelings of Christmas. Don't worry, we'll move past it, but I, I don't want us to miss it. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, why in the world would anyone reject that type of love? The self-sacrificial love of God. Why would anyone reject it? Here's why. Because it makes you come face-to-face with the reality that you really are that bad but you really are that bad. Extreme problems need extreme solutions. And the incarnation is about as extreme of a solution as it gets. It's a baby born to die. That's what it actually takes to cover our sin, the murder of the Son of God. You can't think about the incarnation without thinking about the crucifixion. And, and we don't really want to admit that that's what it takes we want to run to self-righteousness. We want to scratch and claw and cling to every piece of goodness that we can find in our lives so we don't have to admit that that's what it took for us to be saved. And clinging to that goodness, clinging to the self-righteousness, that's what it looks like to reject the Son of God. That's what it looks like to turn your back on Him, is to believe that you're good enough without Him, to believe that you've got this without the baby in the manger. And that's what we're all tempted towards. That's what, we're, that's what I'm tempted towards. So Drew um, gave a, an analogy a couple weeks ago that I've been thinking about ever since. So I'm just going to essentially steal it and kind of do the same thing. But I'm telling you that ahead of time, so it's fine. Um, you guys know who Bo Bergdahl is. Uh, so that kind of comes with like a bunch of like political implications, like can of worms. There. Okay, I'm not going there. Like I don't, I don't care. I'm not on one side or the other. It's just, it's, it's an illustration, guys. All right. Um, but Bo Bergdahl was a, well. He is a, a U.S. soldier, and he walked off of his his base, and he was essentially trying to walk to another base. He was in Iraq or Afghanistan, I forget. He was trying to walk to another U.S. base, and he kind of willingly went against the kind of the rules of combat, and he got caught by the Taliban, and he was held for five years, and he was treated the way you can imagine that he was treated. And so this became like national news and and his family was kind of advocating ad, advocating for him and the entire army was kind of out looking for him. The President of the United States was trying to figure out and eventually they exchanged five Taliban prisoners for him and there was this kind of dramatic exchange where the U.S. Army lands with, the hel- I think it was a helicopter, and then five dudes get out and they they exchange. Now imagine... If after all of that, Bo Bergdahl goes up to the U.S. Army, gives him a high five, and says, thanks for coming, guys, but I got this. I'm going to actually head back. I'll figure it out on my own. I can get out. He'd spent five years. He had tried to escape multiple times, and it actually just made it worse. He couldn't get out. But imagine if he just rejected the salvation effort that had caused so many people so much to kind of do it on his own. That's what we do to God when we lean on our own goodness, our own self-righteousness, the humility of God should humble us. He's willing to be born in manure to save you. Are you willing to admit that that's what it took? All right, so that's the power of God made weak and what it means for us. The raw power became weak for us. That's the story of Christmas. But that's not all. That's crazy enough in and of itself. But there's, there's another point. The unknowable made known. The unknowable made known. So there is an infinitely bigger gap between you being able to understand the fullness of God than there is in a one-year-old being able to understand advanced physics or differential equations. We had no chance of knowing him. We had no chance of understanding the God of the universe. But he wanted to be known. He wanted to become personal. He wanted to be known not just as some logical theory, but as, as something that's significant, that means something in our hearts. So he put himself into terms that we could understand. The giant God became this incredibly vulnerable thing a baby. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that word dwelt in that sentence is actually really significant. So John could have used a number of kind of ordinary words, but he picks a very specific word. He uses the word tabernacle. Tabernacle means the place of meeting. God came and he tabernacled with us. And the tabernacle would have been really familiar to the Israelites. It's, it's the tent of meeting that they would kind of set up in their camp and it was this dramatic thing that would happen where Moses would, would walk into the tent of meeting and, and all of the Israelites would kind of stand up and he'd walk in and then the presence of God would come down on the tabernacle and Moses would talk to God face to face like a friend. But here's the thing, even that was limited like Moses specifically asked God in Exodus 33, God, can I see your glory? Like will you show me everything that you are? I want to know you. I want to, I want to be with you. I don't want there to be division. I don't want some symbol of your presence. I want the real thing. And here's what God says, no. No. Why? Because being exposed to a God so big, so holy, so different from us, would have caused him to die. There was no chance that he could be in the presence of God. But here's what John says is that Jesus became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Hope came down. Jesus created a new place where we could meet with God. The tabernacle was a place where heaven and earth met and in Jesus, heaven and earth meet so that we can be in the presence of God. The tabernacle was the place where God would be with his people again. And it was also a place of sacrifice. And that's what Jesus was. He was a sacrifice for us. God became vulnerable so that he could become killable. And through his birth and sacrifice, heaven invaded earth so that people could really know God again, so that there wouldn't be division between people and their creator. And in Jesus... God can come and speak to his, no, his, his new people. Only this time it's not partial. It's the full revelation of what God's like. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. In the incarnation we see his glory. The thing that was denied to Moses is given to you. The glory of God in full view. The fullness of God. And the result is verse 12. Listen to this. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He did all of that so that we could know what it's like to call God Father. So that we could be made near to him. C.S. Lewis has this great quote that I, I think explains it really well. The son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. See, it wasn't enough for him to just leave heaven, to just leave heaven to come to get you, to just overcome all of your sin so you never have to be separated from him again, to just humiliate himself in the form of of a child, to just be near you. If all of that wasn't enough, he wanted to pull you into the family of God. He wanted you to know what it's like to know him and to call him father. That's the crazy story of Christmas. Has it become your story? Has Jesus, the purpose of the universe, become the purpose for you to get out of bed in the morning? Is he the distant force that's become personal to you? So have you ever noticed that um, stories and movies and stuff tend to have a lot of the same themes? So these kind of epic stories usually involve personal sacrifice for someone else. Right? They they usually involve kind of the underdog. Everybody loves an underdog story of of someone who seems insignificant, kind of conquering and overthrowing something and winning. Right? So you, you can see that in, in Star Wars, you can see it in Harry Potter. I don't know why I'm just giving nerdy examples. Because my next example is Lord of the Rings, which is also nerdy, but I love it. So I just started reading Lord of the Rings and and Tolkien actually wrote that book to kind of talk about Christian ideas. And if you know Lord of the Rings, there's this this awesome character called Frodo, right? And Frodo is this seemingly like insignificant. Um, he he's like the most humble character in the entire book. And and Frodo comes across this ring, which symbolizes. Evil in the world as i'm talking about it, it's just some more and more nerdy but just just bear with me It's so good. It's such a good story So he has this ring which symbolizes evil in the world and until, as long as that ring exists There's going to be evil in the world. The world has no hope right And in all of these powerful people kind of rise up and they try and destroy this ring But eventually they're corrupted by it and then this little hobbit named frodo Takes the ring and he leaves everything that he knows his family, his friends, his comfort, his home. And he walks straight to the enemy's camp. And because he's seemingly so insignificant, he's just a hobbit, right? Evil could never be overthrown by something that small, something that insignificant. He walks right into mortar, the kind of the the heartbeat of the enemy, and thinking that he's gonna sacrifice himself he throws the ring in the fire and it destroys evil forever. And there's kind of this this cool scene, like in the movies, if you've seen it, where there's just sort of this wave where everything that's, that's evil just kind of crumbles, right? And the only thing that's left is the good guys. And they're standing there and they see evil kind of crumble in front of them. And they just, kind of tears in their eyes, just go, Frodo, he did it. That's, that seems kind of crazy, kind of out there, right? Kind of like a fairy tale. I'm telling you, the real story of the world is even crazier than that. That's a shadow of the reality of what Jesus did. The seemingly vulnerable and insignificant child rises up, and he walks into enemy territory, leaving everything that he knew, and he brings evil to its knees, suffering, suffering, pain, hopelessness crumble at the foot of Jesus. The enemy missed him because he seemed so insignificant but the insignificance was hiding power. Power to save the world. That's the logic of the universe. That's the story of Jesus. It's the king that came down. It's the hope that's been made real for you. And so the only real response to that is for us to just stand there knowing we didn't have anything to do with it and just go, Jesus, he did it. He's amazing. Let me pray. Thanks, Jesus, that you came down to get us, that you didn't stay distant, that you didn't stay impersonal, but you wanted us to be known, and so you did the most ridiculous thing in the history of the world, you became a baby so that we could know you. And so we praise you for that. And so as we go through our day, would you remind us of how beautiful, how amazing, how crazy the incarnation is? And would we just stand in amazement at the fact that you, you brought evil to its knees? You saved the world. We love you. Amen.